All right, we're in Acts chapter 6 this morning. Acts chapter 6. Uh, you can turn with me there. We're beginning a section on Stephen. Stephen is uh, Acts 6 and 7, and he is one of the great, faithful, godly, Christ-like characters in the Bible. He is, there is so much that can be learned from Stephen. This morning we're in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, looking at his overall character. And next week is chapter 7, which is going to be uh, a packed sermon uh, about his sermon, which is long. And I look forward to it next week. Perhaps you can read ahead for next week. But he is a character that was earlier in chapter 6 called by the church, prayed over, blessed by the apostles, and one of those who was appointed as a deacon in the church. We see his passionate ministry to carry out the great commission of Jesus Christ, to be one who would bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, one who would speak openly, gladly, boldly, and also who would serve the church in aspects of grace and power. So please stand with me this morning as we read from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through the end of the chapter. All right, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. And we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Stephen is the way that he is because he has filled with the spirit of the Lord. We know from his selection as a, as a deacon, one of the first qualifications was that the person be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is so of Stephen. And as he is filled with God's Spirit, he's described in other ways, full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom. And these things work their way out in this passage. What does it mean that he is full of grace? Grace is unmerited favor, a favor that a person does not deserve. This Sanhedrin audience, which he is before, this group of people that hate him and hate the works of Christ, are a group that do not deserve the favor of the Lord. His attitude towards them, his attitude of continually appealing to them, continually seeking their hearts that they might believe and come to salvation, is something of grace on his part. He would not have this attitude towards them if he were not filled with God's Spirit. If he was in a carnal mind, he would hate these people. They would be his enemies and he would be seeking to get rid of them or force them out of his life or somehow uh, side against them. But instead, by God's spirit, he is full of grace towards this group who are hard-hearted and hateful. And remember that we find out at the end of chapter 7 that in this group is also Saul of Tarsus. 
Saul, who bitterly hates Stephen and bitterly hates the church, but whom God is going to radically convert in Acts chapter 9. Stephen is also full of power. It is the great mark of a person that is full of the Holy Spirit that they are bold. They are not ashamed of the gospel as Nick talked to us last week. And they are also not afraid to speak to those who oppose them. He is acting and telling them about God, telling them about themselves, telling them about the scriptures. And in this way, he is like Christ. And that Stephen is full of grace and of truth. And both of these things are flowing out of his life towards his audience. It tells us that Stephen's ministry was full of signs and wonders. At this period in church history, the Lord is greatly confirming the work of the church and the beginning of the church through all kinds of wonders and signs. And Stephen was a part of this. But we also should remember, as I point out to you often, that people are not saved through the doing of miracles. They're saved through the proclaiming of God's word. And so what is the crucial and the central main part of this uh, remembrance of Stephen and his ministry is his sermon. And it is his sermon that we should notice that causes such opposition uh, to his ministry. And this should not be a surprise. The people that are opposed to him are not opposed to his charitable good works. They're not opposed to him serving soup to widows in the line. And they're not opposed to him healing people. What are they opposed to? They're opposed to his message. They're opposed to the message that proclaims that they are sinners. They are opposed to his confrontational speaking to them that they have missed the word of the prophets. And they are opposed to him calling them what he does at the end of chapter 7. Which after speaking to them about much of the Old Testament, he brings it down to a very clear focus. Saying that they are a people who resist the work of the Holy Spirit. That they are a people that have a heritage of hating the ministry of the prophets. That they were a part of the people who killed, murdered Jesus. That they are, have a hand in betraying Jesus. That they have been given the law, but they do not obey the law. And all of this being poured out on them, they cannot stand Stephen's spoken ministry as he preaches God's word. And as it is so always the case, that when people are confronted by their sins, one of two things is going to happen. There's either going to be grace that is poured out upon them to where they repent of their sins and they recognize that the things that are being said to them, or what is being said to us about our own sinfulness is in fact true and we confess our sins and receive forgiveness for our sins or we are deeply offended by this and we want to get this person and their message out of our life and we, so we do something to shut them out, press them out, or in this case, in other cases, forcibly quiet them so they will stop saying what they are saying. But Stephen in his message, it's interesting the way it's described in verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was speaking to a educated audience of people, people that knew the scriptures to a certain degree, but his speaking was wise and it was profound and it was clear and it was passionate. And when they wanted to argue against what he was saying, their arguments failed and they couldn't withstand what he was doing and it became profoundly frustrating to them, I think because they knew that he was right, but they hated him for being right. And that's an interesting thing. 
We are not trying to win arguments when we proclaim the gospel. We are trying to proclaim God's truth, but God's truth in a sinful world always has an inherently confrontational aspect to it. And there are certain people where the gospel will strike their heart and they will repent of their sins and receive that forgiveness and find this peace that Joe spoke about to us this morning. And there are others that will hate you for it because they cannot withstand what is being said, but their hearts are not softened to the gospel. And so let me ask you this morning, how does a person ever get to the place where they can preach, teach, speak, or reason with others like Stephen is doing? Where does this power come from? Where does this wisdom and this persuasiveness come from? I would argue to you this morning that the first place where this comes from is a deep knowledge and understanding of the scriptures. There's no way as we look at the sermon next week in chapter 7 that you can say that Stephen has anything other than an incredibly deep and thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Stephen has spent a lot of time poring over God's word, not just reading it periodically for the sake of reading it, but studying it for understanding. We all know that there's a difference between reading something to enjoy it and reading it to truly understand it. Do you just read it and pass right by it? Or do you read it and say, I don't really understand what I just read there. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to read it some more and I'm going to study it. I'm going to work through it. Clearly, Stephen was one who read for understanding of the scriptures. And he was one who prayed for wisdom. His understanding was with wisdom. He understood the the meaning of these things and they were applied to his heart to where when he brought them and spoke them and applied them to this audience that he was speaking to, it came across with authority and wisdom. And I want us to understand that it's right that we pray for wisdom. In James 1.5, James, the, the head of the church there in Jerusalem, wrote to us in Scripture, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely to all without finding fault. It's right for us when we're reading the Scriptures to ask God, Help me to understand this by your spirit. Make me wise to understand these things. And praying for wisdom year after year after year puts you in that humble, teachable place before God and the Lord will instruct your heart. And you will find that you're able to respond to people according to the scripture in a way that you never could before and in a way that is similar to what Stephen is doing in our passage today. Well, the other person in the audience here, one of the others, is Saul. Now, we know that Saul had a deep knowledge of the scriptures. Trained under Gamaliel, the great scribe, he understood the law as well. But the difference between Stephen and Saul is that Saul has no understanding. Saul is still in the category of one who is fighting against, or as the Lord Jesus describes to Saul during his conversion, he is kicking against this. He does not want it to be a part of his life. He refuses to believe that Jesus is who Stephen is saying that he is. And so I want to take a moment to ask you, you know, what is the essential difference between Stephen and Saul? Two people that both have a thorough knowledge of the scripture, one who is believing, one who is filled with God's spirit, one whose countenance is shining with the light of heaven, and the other who is filled with hatred, murderous hatred, to extinguish what is happening here, but both who understand by knowledge the scripture. Well, the difference between the two is revelation. 
And we must understand this. God has opened Stephen's heart to know these things. God has revealed himself to Stephen. We are not able to press our way in our own might into God's place or into his throne room or into understanding him. Saul has studied as far as he can study in human terms, but he does not understand yet who God is because God has not revealed himself to Saul. And so what happens in Acts chapter 9 is a dramatic revelation of Jesus to Saul where he understands for the first time who Jesus actually was because the Lord breaks into the situation and makes himself known to Saul. I want you to understand that the Bible is not about the quest of eager people seeking to discover God, but God revealing himself to a rebellious and sinful world. We can never press up towards God with enough academic fervor or emotion or hopefulness and break our way into who God is. The Lord must, by his purposes, make known his character and make known his actions and make known his ultimate will. And this is what is happening in the scriptures. The progressive revelation of God's character and his purposes and his will. It is something that is supernatural. What that means is something that is outside the natural order of events. It's outside the, the seasons and outside the 24-hour day and outside of gravity. It's something that is of the Lord, something that is divine, something that is acting upon the world to make itself known. And this is God making himself known to humanity. We must, by faith, pray for understanding. We must seek to understand what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen in the future. But in this, we must come back to what I said earlier. We are in the humble, dependent place. We are in the student place. We are in the place where we are calling out and asking God, make yourself known to me. Help me to understand who you are. And what happens is that the Lord reveals himself to us step by step, piece by piece, year by year, to where it never grows old. There are those in this congregation that have been seeking and walking with the Lord Jesus for decades upon decades. And still, and even more so, is there the sweetness of knowing more and more of the Lord as he makes himself known to us. This audience does not believe. Stephen is very clear and that they are a stiff-necked people that resist the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead of humbly asking God to make himself known, praying for wisdom, seeking to understand what they do not understand before, they instead are angry with and press out these things. But they cannot withstand the compelling truth that Stephen preaches. And so what happens here is what has happened before in the book of Acts and what has happened countless times throughout history that when they reach the point where they can no longer withstand the argument and the truth of what is being said, but they refuse to submit themselves to Jesus, that this goes from being a debate to what is called ad hominem or against the person. We see this all the time and we see it in our culture right now, sadly, all over the place where people are no longer willing to talk to each other about two sides of a story, 
or two sides of an issue and to debate the issue, they're so frustrated with each other that they just attack each other. And that's what happens when debate breaks down. When the ability to talk through things and go back and forth uh, over the issues at hand break down, it becomes a power struggle. And it becomes a struggle of who is able to displace the other person. And depending on the circumstances, this can get very, very much out of control. And that's what's happening here. They're tired of debating with Stephen, and so they're going to arrest, they're arresting him and then accusing him, and we'll see what happens to him in the end. But this has been brought home to me very clearly lately as I've, I've been reading uh, some of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's works. He was a person who lived during the early to mid-20th century in the Russian gulags, and he spent a long period of his life as a political exile in the gulag system. This particular thing happened in that country in mass where the issue of debate broke down and it became a complete power struggle between Stalin and the rest of the country. And so he purged by the millions every single person that disagreed with him and shipped them off by train, by boat, by all kinds of things to these archipelago, the gulags and archipelago and the, the way in which these camps were set up there and millions of people uh, were worked to death or held for long periods of time. But what is so interesting as you read through this history, this first person account of the reality of what it meant to be arrested and interrogated and all these things, is that over and over, the people group that was the most particularly persecuted and given the longest sentences and treated the most ruthlessly were those who were religious and those who were particularly Christian. The, at that point in time, if you publicly spoke of Christ, uh, you were taken away, both mother and father. And if neither one of them renounced the Lord, the children would be put in an orphanage and both of them were taken off to the gulags. And so often one parent would renounce and stay back and the other one would go to the gulag. And it's very interesting that Solzhenitsyn speaks about how the women were more devout in their faith and more likely to go to the gulags than the men. But... When they were finished with their sentence, which was always longer than any other actual criminal sentence, they were not allowed ever to go back to the place of origin that they were sent from. They permanently broke apart the families. And it was an intense, political, organized way of trying to destroy Christianity. This message that they had grown tired of hearing about, and they could not, by reason, crush it. It becomes a power struggle where they're just going to destroy it. And it's the exact same thing that is happening in this passage. Through false accusations, a false trial, sentencing, all done in anger, and if possible, to just kill the person and be done with them. What we have in verse 12 through 14, what happens here with Stephen when they're done with him? They start accusing him falsely, and they set up a trial. So it says that they stirred up the people in verse 12. And that is a phrase that we should take seriously. What does it mean to stir up the people? This is the mob, the mob mentality. And there's so much of this in our day and age. It's alarming to me how quickly people can be stirred up to a state of dramatic fear and frenzy by a series of things, either coming across the news or some type of a, a social media person saying something. Uh, it is amazing to me how often people come to me with questions about things, and I, you know, I'll ask them uh, just a few simple questions related to God's word as to whether or not this could possibly be true. 
and they say, well, you know, according to scripture, no, it couldn't possibly be true. Then why are you so, why are you in such a frenzy over this? Let's go back and let's stand upon the scriptures. It is a marker of godly, mature Christian people that they are wise. And because of their consideration and their love of God's word, their, their life has a steadiness to it. It has a, it has a direction to it. And groundless accusations do not sway them and cause them to, to lose their step. They are not easily stirred up to action in this way. They are not blown about by every wind of news or doctrine that comes down the pipe. I would argue to you that great ships are held by strong anchors and tall buildings are set upon firm foundations. And the scripture tells us both of these things that Jesus Christ is to us. He is an anchor, it says, which holds for us within the veil, which means within the holiest place. We have an anchor that holds our life from being tossed about in the sea. And that he is our cornerstone, a solid rock upon which our life is set. So we do not have to be afraid of being washed away by everything that comes in the, the next news cycle. Because we know that our life is set firmly upon Christ Jesus and we do not fear the future. But over and over in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, we see the crowds being stirred up to do something that is evil. We must not be a people easily stirred up to fear or to violence, but firm in Christ and keeping our course always. The accusations that are brought against Stephen in verses 13 and 14 have to do with the, him being against the holy place or against the law. Let's, let's look at this and see what's going on here because both of these are, are aspects of what either Jesus taught or Stephen is teaching that these people do not understand or they reject in understanding what Stephen is actually teaching and they're trying to bring him up on charges of heresy similar to what they did with Jesus. Well, first, this idea of Jesus and then Stephen being against the temple or against the system of sacrifices represented in the temple is important because Jesus was not against the temple. Jesus was the fulfillment of all things in the temple. The temple represents the sacrificial system, a system that was a system of symbols, uh, things that were meant to be fulfilled one day in the sacrifices. So if we look at the idea of a scapegoat and the day of atonement, the idea of sins being put upon a goat and sent out into the wilderness to die and that the sins of the people were in a symbolic way carried away but they were not really done with. They were covered. They were symbolically dealt with. But the guilt kept piling up and piling up because all symbolism has what? It has a true actual thing that it represents. There is no symbol if there is no reality. It's just a fantasy. But symbolism with a reality is true. And so the symbolism of all the Old Testament with the priests, you had all these imperfect, dying, sinful priests offering sacrifices for sin that they themselves needed to be sacrificed for. It was an imperfect, symbolic system. 
So Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to truly take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the perfect undying high priest that we all need to advocate for us forever before a holy God. The temple built with hands of stone uh, and all the gold that's in it, it's all symbolic of heaven. And it is less than the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts, which is a greater step forward than what they had in the Old Testament. And so all that we see of symbolism and imperfection in the Old Testament, Jesus is making whole and fulfilling and bringing to pass the reality of what was um, necessary. The temple was a shadow, if you will, and Jesus is its reality. And that's what Stephen is proclaiming. But he's proclaiming, you don't need the temple anymore. You don't need the sacrificial system anymore because Jesus has risen from the dead and they're losing their minds over this. You don't need the priests anymore because Jesus is your great high priest. If you don't know what I'm talking about here, please spend some time in the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews really relates to that issue. You don't need to go to the temple anymore because by the Holy Spirit, your heart is the residence of God. He, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And all of these things, this seismic shift from symbolism to reality was blowing their minds. And they could not and would not believe it. They said that he was against the law. Stephen understood certainly that the law shows our sinfulness and our need for a savior, but Jesus has fulfilled the law in all of its demands and imparted to those who believe the righteousness of Christ. You know, you might say, well, these things are, these are all in the past. It's very interesting. It's good to understand that. It's important to understand, but why do I, why do I need that now? What? There is nothing new under the sun, folks. There is a strong movement in our day to bring these things back. It's amazing to me how many times I hear these days of people going back to the symbolism of the Old Testament and celebrating and embracing those things as if that is true religion. If we were truly religious, we would still be doing all of these uh, symbolic things in the Old Testament. But so much of the book of Acts is the doing away of these things. And it actually states it right here. He wants to change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And that is a true statement. But why was he changing them? Because they were no longer necessary. Because that which was symbolic is now fulfilled. We should never want to live again without the substance of Christ. We should long for more of Jesus, not to go back to a place where he did not, he had not come and we only had the hope of symbolism. We should enjoy and enter into the real substance of what it means to know and live with Christ. And we should never want to live under the law instead of under grace. We, it's a joy and such a blessing to live under grace and to know that I cannot keep the law, but by the grace of God, I can be forgiven. This is what Stephen was proclaiming to this audience, but they would not hear it. But this last verse is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Because as he is proclaiming these things, as they have reached the end of their rope and they're pulling in false witnesses and they're setting up the kangaroo court and they're getting them to testify against him and hoping to be rid of this man and all of his passionate preaching, in the midst of this Sanhedrin place that's become so familiar to us as we've gone through the book of Acts, Stephen is standing with the glory of heaven shining upon him as if he is an angel. 
There's something of the glory of heaven radiating from him. And this is the crux of the entire passage here. We've been talking about people that both know the scriptures, people that understand the Old Testament, don't understand the Old Testament. What is the difference here? What is the difference between this group around Stephen and Stephen himself? The crux is an essential part. It is the most important point. The crux is the point by which you cannot ascend unless you pass through it. There's one of the, the greatest example I am aware of, 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 of a crux, is that this, there's a documentary out there called Free Solo. If you've never seen it, you should go watch it. It's the documentary of this guy named Alex Hanold, Free Climbing El Capitan, which is the great rock face of the Yosemite National Park. And free climbing, by the way, means no rope. Crazy. So in the midst of El Capitan, there's a crux point. There is no other path to get up this rock face other than through this one place that is so treacherous. And a big part of this documentary is them filming him with a rope over and over and over, practicing this various choreography of moves to get past this crux point. And whether he makes it or not is really going to all relate to this one place. And he falls and he falls and he falls. And the way these masterful docu uh, documentarians uh, film this whole thing. I watched this on an airplane. I thought I was going to jump out of my seat because I didn't know, you don't know if this guy is going to fall to his death or if he's going to make it through this. But eventually he decides he's going for it and he goes up through this and he makes it with no rope through this crux place and keeps going. And this thing is thousands of feet high. It's insane. But the crux is the most important point, the point by which you cannot ascend unless you pass through. And you can gain so much knowledge about the Bible and history and many things, but the crux is Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ and submit yourself to who he is, you will never pass into heaven. Excuse me. You will never enter the kingdom of God if you do not believe in Jesus Christ. And these people, this audience, they've reached that crux point, but they cannot and they will not pass through in believing in Jesus Christ. Peter, I'm sorry, Stephen has. He has entered into great faith in Jesus Christ. And he is standing there before them having partially entered into the kingdom of God. Peter talks about how when we come to salvation, we begin to partake in the divine nature. Go think about that one for a little bit. Your nature is changed when you are born again. And you begin to grow in a nature that is new, that is born again unto spiritual life. And the more that you grow in Christ, the more your nature is like Jesus. And Stephen has deeply entered in to partaking of the divine nature. And like Moses before him, as we read in Exodus, he has spent such near time with Jesus that the light of heaven is shining upon him, at this, especially at this crucial moment in time. And what just blows me away, as you'll see next week, that this glory causes them to hate him even more, which is just something worth thinking about. There will never be a reconciliation between this fallen world and the kingdom of God. They will always be opposed to each other. There is only forsaking this world and entering into the kingdom of God. There will be no reconciling of these two together. I call upon you and urge you this morning, my brothers and sisters, 
whether you are young or old, that you will believe in Jesus with a full heart. And as it says in the Psalms and Hebrews, that today if you hear his voice, you will not harden your heart as in rebellion. That you will confess and you will forsake your sins. That you will not cling to them, that you will not desperately hide them. I was reminded this week of just a, a personal example of, of, of desperately hiding sin. You cannot hide your sin before the Lord. Be humble, confess it, forsake it, be done with it, unburden yourself. This is what salvation is about. Will you, who are far off, call to Jesus and make himself known to you through his word? If you do not understand what I am talking about today, but your heart yearns for these things, seek, ask, knock, press in, ask the Lord to make himself known to you and he will answer your prayer. He will make known to you that which you do not understand. And I want to close today by reading from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. And I think that it is, in reading commentaries this week, I, I agree with them. I think it is not, uh, with, it, is, it is likely that the account that we have in Acts 6 and 7 of Stephen, specifically of the sermon, specifically what happens there, was related to Luke by someone. And it's very likely that it was related to him by Paul, who was here present at this occasion and seeing this and understands it in a totally different way later and relates it to Luke to be written down in such great detail in the book of Acts. But Paul speaks about the light of the glory of Christ shining in our hearts in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So let me read this as we close. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.